Welcome to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Data Science Zoominar podcast. Our Zoominars feature interactive conversations with data science experts working across a wide spectrum of applications in industry, government, and academia. The conversations are moderated by faculty from the Department of Data Science at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode, Rafael Irizarry talks with Andrew Gelman from Columbia University on election forecasting. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Data Science Zoominars Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Today, we're very lucky to have Andrew Gelman. We'll be talking about the elections, one of his areas of expertise. So Andrew is a professor of statistics and political science, Columbia University. He's written a bunch of books or co-written a bunch of books, including Bayesian data analysis, teaching statistics, um, a quantitative tour of the social sciences using regression and multi-level hierarchical models, uh, data analysis using regression multiple levels, and regression and other stories. And the one that's probably most relevant for today, rate state, blue state, rich state, poor state, why Americans vote the way they do. He's also one of the go-to statisticians for the New York Times. He gets interviewed quite often there with statistics question and also author of one, perhaps the most popular statistics blog, Statistical Modeling, Causal Inference and Social Science. I highly recommend checking that out. That's a good blog to follow if you wanna learn about how statistics is used in, in all kinds of different areas. So thanks again for, for joining Andrew. Uh, I wanted to start by maybe giving a brief overview to our, our audience, which are not all Americans, uh, about what the electoral college is, polls, forecasters, and the situation with the mail-in vote. I'm happy to chime in, but may I'll give you a chance to explain that maybe in a minute or two. Oh, you want me to explain? Oh, I can do it if you want. So, oh, um, so uh, every... Uh, uh, two years we have election for Congress and every four years we have an election for president in the United States. So this year there were um, there were people voted for president and for Congress. Um, the presidential vote is what people focus mostly about. Um, but I can say that in both um, the um, Democrats uh, did a little bit better than the Republicans in the congressional races and in the presidential race. So Joe Biden, the Democratic president, was elect candidate was elected president. Um, more Democrats than Republicans were elected in Congress. The presidential vote, which is what people are most interested in talking about, is done by state. So they don't just add up the number of votes received by both parties. Um, within each state, they receive they add up the number of votes received by all the candidates and whoever. Um, whoever uh, wins in the state gets all of the electoral votes in the state and then the electoral votes themselves are added up. Um, so in order to win the presidential election, you have to win enough states. Uh, uh, the electoral votes are roughly, but not exactly in proportion to the population of the state. Roughly speaking, you need to win enough states that represent more than half of, of the country. Um, uh, in this particular, in the last couple of elections, um, the Democrats have won well over 50% of the vote, um, but um, 
in this case, um, just barely won enough states uh, because of the way the votes are distributed within the states. So the discussion of the election is kind of complicated um, because what matters most is the election within certain swing states. But let me just step back for a moment and say that the swing states, the electoral college is how they count the votes, but when it comes to public opinion, um, the um, swings from one year to the next are mostly approximately uniform at the national level. Not exactly, but approximately. So although the way to the way that Joe Biden got elected president was that he won a bunch of key swing states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, um, Georgia. But the way you can't really just go in there and win a few swing states. Basically, he won the election by getting about 52% of the vote, which enabled him to win certain, certain swing states. So that's the background. Right, and then the, uh, the, the reason that we're, one of the main things we're gonna be talking about today are how statistics is used to try to forecast the election and understand also what happens afterwards. So the, the main, the most popular forecaster, it seems is, is 538, which is run by Nate Silver, but there's been others, uh, others that have done it as well. And one of them is The Economist. This, this is a magazine that has its own group of forecasts. And my understanding is that you work with them Andy, this year? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, what your involvement was. So I was contacted by Elliot Morris, who was a data journalist at The Economist in, I think, February. And he contacted me and said, could you help us? We wanted to build a forecasting model combining poll information and um, economic and political fundamentals. And so I said, sure. And I also involved Elliot Morris. I mean, Elliot Morris is the economist guy. I also invo involved Marilyn Heidemans, who's a PhD student at Columbia working with me. So we helped um, Elliot set up a model in Stan to predict, to predict the election, to forecast it based on the available information. Great. So the, for those that don't follow this as closely as, as I do, uh, the, the, ma the main source of information, apart from some of these other fundamental things having to do with the economy and, and previous history, are state polls. In particular, the state polls in the, in the states that are what Andrew calls swing states, the one that we're not clearly sure which, one, which way they'll go. There's some states that always go the same way, and we don't even bother um, studying them very much. And that, that the, that, those numbers then kind of drive the the parameters of the model mainly right it's really it's really those state polls that are combined in, in a way to try to get an estimate of what the advantage of 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 the candidates are in each state correct partly we also use national polls because as i said when polling errors and swings um, tend to be mostly at the national level and so we actually do learn a lot from national polls Sometimes when the state polls and the national polls are in disagreement, you can't necessarily know which one to trust. You would use some combination, some average between them, but you wouldn't want to just use the state polls. Okay. In this particular campaign, the state polls and national polls were comparable and they were all off by about two and a half percentage points. So they, they all 
overstated um, the support for Joe Biden, and also they overstated the support for Democrats in the congressional elections. So although the Democrats won the congressional elections, they were expected to win by a larger margin. And although Joe Biden won with 52% of the vote, he was expected to get about 54% of the vote. Right, so that brings me to one of, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, a couple of them actually. The first is that the last election, last presidential election, there was there's quite a few forecasters that were giving Hillary Clinton something like 99%. Sometimes, I, th I think I saw one that was giving her 99.9% uh, of, of probabilities of winning. And it seemed that what was what they were missing in their models was this, the, the concept of what you just described, this, this beat, the, all the polls being off by about two and a half percent, that, in, that introduces correlation into the, into the errors for each state. And if you, if you ignore that correlation, you end up with you know, a, much, a, a very, very underestimated standard error for whatever final estimate you give. And that, and that seems to be the, what happened and how they got it so wrong. Meanwhile, 538, they had uh, Trump's chances, something like 30%, 29, 28, 29%. And it's because a model that, I, I guess I call it a global bias, but maybe you have a better name for it. It's this, this error we'd that's going to be common. We'd say, we'd say national, because global, global would include other countries, right? Okay, <laughs> sure. So. Yeah, so that that is now I, I am assuming that you you model that in 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 the, your model. And can you say a little bit about how you modeled it and how you get how do you get an idea of how big it was going to be? Or is there? And I assume it has some distribution, which I want. We to be did a here. study. My colleagues and I did a study a couple of years ago of errors, uh, polling errors, and we did find that the non-sampling error is about as large as the sampling error, just historically looking at looking at pre-election polls so we the non-sampling error the error of two and a half percent was large even by historical standards and so that's why you know the result was some somewhat of a surprise but we do allow we do allow errors um state we allow car errors that are correlated. Um, we made a graph, I, we, we put a graph on, on the blog the other day of the difference between the election outcome and the poll-based forecast. And what you see is in most of the states, um, Biden did worse than the polls. Not all of them, he, he did um, about as well as predicted in Georgia, Arizona, and Colorado. Um, but then he did worse than expected in, in a bunch of other states too. He did worse than expected in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but not enough to lose, but he did worse than expected in Florida, which was enough for him to lose in that state. So it's, yeah, it's not a, it's, it's a correlated, potentially correlated error. Um, and I think, I think a lot of this error is coming from differential non-response. Uh, Republicans were less likely to answer the answer the polls, and Democrats were more likely to answer the polls. That's what you think. Where do you get that? Where do you get that from? Some study, or is that your your instinct? Uh, kind of a combination. So first, it has to be something. Uh, there is there's not, I, and so I think that the two leading I think it's the the two leading candidates are differential non-response and variation in turnout. Though I, I also, it, that 
Republicans had a high turnout. Both parties had a high turnout this year, but the Republicans, I, I believe, had a higher turnout. Um, part of this could be campaigning. So there's some data. There's data we did not include in our analysis, which I guess is on us. Like it's our bad that we didn't. But there's data on voter new voter registration, and seems that the Republicans are registering more new voters than Democrats, which makes sense. Um, based on that Republicans or the Republican campaigners were more out there on the streets and Trump was doing uh, big public rallies where, while the, the Democrats were not, right? And that was difference how the two parties were, were responding to coronavirus. So I think the Republicans did benefit from having more active campaigning. And that translates not into persuading anybody necessarily, but it, trans, it can translate into higher, more people registered and higher turnout. Polls try to account for turnout. So when they survey people, they ask if they're likely to vote, but it's much harder, at least it's much easier to get a sense of how someone will vote than whether they'll vote. The, the survey response for who you're gonna vote for is a pretty stable thing. Uh, the survey response for whether you're going to vote is is a lot more uncertain. It's also been conjectured, and, and I don't know about this at all, but it's con been conjectured that in response to the high rate of Democratic early voting, that perhaps certain Republicans were more likely to vote on election day as, as a way of counteracting that. So that's all about turnout. The non-response, it's not a conjecture that non-response is an issue, and we people have looked you can tell that there is differential non-response in surveys because you'll get different surveys at different times with different proportions of Democrats and Republicans in, in the poll, like bigger difference than you would expect just by, by random chance. So it's known that surveys can overrepresent one party or the other. The survey organizations try to handle that with adjustments so they can adjust for demographics. So of course, white people are more likely to vote for Republicans. So if your survey has too many white people, then you then you would adjust for that. On the other hand, if it oversamples white, if, it, if you're oversampling white Democrats and undersampling white Republicans, then correcting for ethnicity won't correct that. Then there's then you can adjust for education. Some surveys adjust for who you voted for, who you say you voted for in the previous election, but none of these adjustments are, are perfect. And this year, there were, according to exit polls, which maybe you can tell us what you think of them, Blacks and Hispanics, their support for Trump grew, and maybe that was underestimated in, in the adjustments. So I, the, what I saw in the, in, in the exit polls was that 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 it, white men uh, support for Trump decreased, and Hispanics, Blacks increased a little bit, or maybe not so little, actually. There is some okay. evidence for that also in the vote total. So the geographic vote that you can look at areas that have higher or lower percentage of minorities and, and look at how the vote was there. So I haven't looked at all these data. Exit polls do have issues. Exit polls have big non-response problems. Um, that said, it does, it, it sounds like that's that was the case and that was, that was what was happening. And that can make it difficult to adjust for non-response. Um, and it's you're supposed to be able to get you should be able to get a lot of that in the pre-election polls um, but I see again I see. it depends it's it depends who are the respondents and the non-respondents and since like most people the vast majority of people don't respond to surveys so you're really getting 
only that you're not getting anything like a random or representative sample. You're getting the sample of people who are reachable. And those, those people who are reachable are kind of unusual people. Right. Okay, give me a second. I want to show, so this is, this is my attempt at, at replicating the 538 model. Uh, it's not, I mean, they, they don't make it, they don't make all the details public, but it, I was looking at it and kind of follow, followed it pretty well. Oh, you have it? Well, so, but I want to, what I want to just show people is like how important that error is. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about it. So the national level error. Um, so the, the, let me read here what the, the, the big difference between, not big, but the, the difference between 538 and the Economist this year, the main one was that they had a, a 89% for Biden. And I believe Economist had 96% for Biden. And you can get that difference by simply changing that, the assumption of how much the national level error is from three, which is what I think 538 is using. And if I change it to two, then you get um, 95%, which is more in tune with what the economist has. Uh, so, they, yeah, go ahead. No, they had some weird things in their model. I, I think I think their, their take on the model was that they wanted to get the overall chance of Biden winning to be something reasonable. And so they kind of threw in a lot of weird stuff in the model to get that. And I think their final thing was reasonable, but like, like for example, their model had Biden having a 6% chance of winning South Dakota, which like for people who follow politics, like that was too high a number. Um, they, 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 they had a lot of, they had also, they had, there was a, they had a notorious map where they're releasing maps of possible election outcomes. And one of the maps was that Donald Trump wins New Jersey and loses all the other states. And it, that was not, it's not like that wasn't gonna happen. Of course, any particular map is unlikely to happen because it's random, but it didn't, it didn't make sense. And, and I looked into it and again, they, they don't release their code, so you can't be sure. But I think what they did is they kept throwing error terms into their model to get the national electoral college variance high enough, I which see. isn't, the, it's not the worst thing to do, but it's kind of like if you're cooking and you keep throwing in spices until like, like you, you get weird overtones. So I there see. were aspects of it that didn't make sense. Um, that's not bad, like in the sense, if you have a forecast and aspects of the forecast don't make sense, that's kind of good because it represents room for improvement. Like you, you, one of the, I think if all we did, if all we did in a forecast was come up with a single number, which is Biden's win probability, like sure, you might as well do it, but it becomes very hard to go forward. The fact that you can forecast 50 states and potentially forecast congressional elections and other things, that that actually helps because there are more ins to it, right? There are more ways you can look at it. Just like when you do what you do, Rafa, like in the biostatistics world. So if you're doing, if you're studying the effect of some treatment, maybe all you care is about is total survival. But if you start measuring intermediate outcomes, that can be useful because it, it might turn out that your model predicts total survival okay, but it's messing up on how it's happening and that provides room for improvement. So we should be able to interrogate our forecasts and like the tool that you built is a great example of how you can try to get inside the forecast and understand it rather than just treating it as a, a number. Yeah, sure. And, and 
and yeah, I see what you're saying about how they get that three, that standard deviation of three is not by just modeling and saying it's three, it's by adding a bunch of little things until you get to guess what was what turned out to be plausible. Like so, so if you but but to follow up on that, if if that's how big your error for for the polls are, so just to, just everybody's on the same page. What we're saying is that you can get all the polling you want. You can get a thousand polls at each state, and your standard error from the sampling and from from the pollster effect just goes away. So you think you have it. You can you're still and you can do nothing about this. You still have a, a standard error of about two or three percentage points just because people are not are not um, responding in the same way to the poll. So that if that number is that big. If it's three, if the standard is three, that means you need about a seven to eight percent advantage to, to feel some somewhat comfortable that you're going to win. And at that at that point, I'm not. I guess it does. It becomes a little bit less useful to be doing all this, right? If you have to be that far ahead to to to, to feel confident that there's going to be a win, what what is the? So I mean, this is a question for you. What is what is the point of doing all this? If if it's if the error of the polls is so large and there's nothing we can do about it, or maybe there yep. is. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the answer is that the, it depends on the campaign. So in this campaign, the fundamentals and the polls were about at the same place. So the fundamentals predicted that Biden would, would win, maybe get 52, 54% of the vote based on the fact that the economy wasn't going well and the president was unpopular. The polls had Biden at about 54, 55% of the poll at the vote. Um, you could have ignored the polls the if you take the fundamentals and then take last year's election result, last election results and shift it, you get kind of the right result. If you fold in the polls, it doesn't change things that much because the fundamentals already had Biden with a, with a lead. So it wouldn't matter so much. And during the campaign, the polls were remarkably stable. Biden was at 54% for months. Some of the fluctu in fact, some of the fluctuations in the polls weren't even kind of real after you adjust them. So given that, I'd say, yeah, we didn't need any of this. We could have just said, like, here's Biden. He's expected to win. We're not sure. Look what happened in 2016. And let's get some polls. And the polls are kind of consistent. We don't need, we don't need to write a big model and stand. Uh, we don't need a big, like, we don't need to produce 40,000 simulations or whatever. We can just, we can just make a map, take last year's election map and say, what would happen if we shifted it up by 2% for Joe Biden? He'll win these states. It's just pretty much what happened. So, so we could have done that. However, not all campaigns are like this year. So what if in 2016, the polls were moving around? Now it turned out in retrospect in 2016, a lot of the movement in the polls was illusory and it had to do with differential number response, which was captured by some of the polls. If that, if we had fit our model there, we then you'd see much more stability, not perfect stability, but much more. What if you have state polls in 2016, we had state polls disagreeing with national polls. What do you do about that? So you know, our model would say, well, the state polls could be wrong. So we, let's not overinterpret them. That's why when we backfit our model to 2016, you don't get such a strong claim of supporting one candidate or the other. So in it's often the case in statistics when different sources of information agree, then just about anything will work or not work in the sense like it's not like you just you you are where you are when different sources of information disagree that's when the statistics is going to become more important it doesn't solve your problem um, but again thinking about these biostatistics examples as you know 
there really have been medical trials where the evidence isn't clear. And it doesn't mean that the drug doesn't work. It just means that evidence sometimes seems like it's pointing in different directions and you have to go and start to, to model it. Um, that's where the benefit would be. And we were, we're definitely coming into this election thinking about elections like 2012 and 2016, which were close, but where the polls moved around and this kind of modeling will stabilize things. On the other hand, stability is not the same as certainty. So you could be stable and say a certain candidate has an X percent chance of winning throughout the campaign. That doesn't mean you're certain. All right, let me, I, want, I have a bunch of questions. So I wanna ask them, get, try to get through some of them. So first question, is it possible that projecting high probabilities of win loss actually influences vote behavior to the detriment of the model? Um, I'm doubtful. There's been, I guess, I'm not so worried about it in 2020 because polls found that people, like about half the people thought Biden was going to win, about half the people thought Trump was going to win. Um, so I don't think that although Biden was favored in the polls and Biden voters thought Biden was going to win, Trump voters thought Trump was going to win. So I, I kind of doubt that. Um, I'm just generally skeptical of that in, in the sense that people vote in all sorts of states that aren't even close. I voted in New York and New York was never expected to be close. And also sometimes people say the other way that you think your candidate's losing and you don't bother voting. The, the, the rationale for not voting if it's not gonna be close is symmetric. Um, it doesn't favor one or the other. You could easily make the argument that it would, it would favor the candidate who's ahead in the polls. Um, so I don't really, I'm not so, concerned about that. I think there are bigger influences on voter turnout than election forecasts. And indeed, we weren't really accounting for those in our model, and maybe we should have been. All right, question from Andrew Chappell. Were poll biases in 2016 incorporated into 2020 prediction models? If so, did inclusion of these results result in better prediction of state-by-state -state performances? If poll by if we had incorporated 2016 poll biases into 2020 predictions, we would have done better. We didn't. Now, why didn't we? Well, to the poll biases in 2016 were not the same as the ones in 2012. They went in the opposite direction. And after 2016, we had every reason to think that polling organizations would fix those biases and say, oh, we didn't adjust for education among white respondents. Well, now we're gonna adjust for education among white respondents. We're gonna fix that, et cetera. So our expectation was there could be large polling errors just because any election there can be large polling errors. We had no, we, we didn't put a prior on the direction of them. So we predicted Biden would get 54% of the vote we thought, well, he could get 57% or he could get 51%. Um, we, we kind of, and if you put yourself on election day before the election, if it had been 57%, that would have been stunning um, in the other, other direction. But like, it, it doesn't seem like it couldn't have happened. I, right. I do feel, as I said, I could, you could fault us for not including non-poll data in our model, like data information and voter registration and, and, and other things. Very difficult and, and yeah, very difficult year, of course. Yeah, so let me, I wanted to just uh, expand on that a little bit, just so everybody um, gets this part that you can get, so what Andrew's saying is that you can, the error in, in, in this model, you're just saying it's going, there's going to be an error. It could be as big as five or six uh, in the tails, 
but we don't know which way it's going to go. We're just going to, and if you're generated, if you think of a simulation, you're basically every year, every, you know, every election that you simulate will have an error, but in different ways. And that, that improves your, I guess it, 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 it improves your, your, your model in that you'll be less certain about the final result. But there's another thing which you can do, which is just shift everything, which is what this, this, this person's asking. And that, um, we did see the shift in the same direction. So there, maybe there's something about Trump, although it's just two data points, but Trump got two uh, errors that were in his favor. I, I don't know if, we ever, if we've ever seen that before um, um, for, other, for other candidates that you have two large negative, negative, positive, depending how you view it, in the same direction uh, in two separate elections. Is that something we've seen before, Andrew? Um, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, because the polling has been much more stable. Like if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, the polls just varied a lot much more during the campaign. So uh, Jimmy Carter was way ahead of Gerald Ford in the polls for months, but right before the campaign, the polls, were, right before the election, the polls were basically tied and the election was very close to a tie. And Jimmy, then when Jimmy Carter ran again against Reagan, the polls were close, Reagan was in the lead, but he Reagan won by more than was expected. So we, we have various cases of, of things. Sometimes there's big changes before the election. Sometimes they, the, the election result is a surprise. It's also one of these things, like you have to look at the percentage of the vote received by the candidates. Like you can look at our forecast and say, forget about standard errors. We predicted 49 out of 50 states correct or, or something like that, 48. Well, that's a little bit misleading because although we, like a lot of them, Okay, so our, our forecast was off by like five percentage points in West Virginia. Well, we still correctly predicted that Trump would win West Virginia. So like, does it matter? Well, yeah, it matters. Like being off by 5%, like you want to understand what's going on in, in places like that. It's not, um, but like simple measures, you could you can make yourself look good by, by just counting winners. Um, but then a lot of that is, it's a mix. A lot of that is easy predictions and then luck. Good. So here's a question from Gopal Kotecha. Uh, so you're, he's quoting you. They wanted to get the overall chance of Biden winning to something reasonable. Talking about 538. Mm. This sounds like backward reasoning on their part. Is this? Is this? What do you think of this? I don't. It it is what it is. I mean, like if you if you produce your model and say that there's a 99.9 percent .9 chance, then you'd say, well, empirically forecasters have been wrong before so it seems wrong um it, it's not clear like we ended up with over a 99 percent chance that biden would win the elect the popular vote mm -hmm. and no was it right like maybe it should have been 98 percent. i think nobody thought biden would lose the popular vote and the popular vote was not close like could it have happened like when you get to these very unusual probabilities anything can happen but in real life like you can just set up a statistical model and just screw up somewhere. So you want to have some sanity checks. And then for forecasters, there are reputational costs to being wrong, right? So mm -hmm. it, there's a kind of like, for example, like we, yeah, I mean, you, you somehow. Yeah, if you say 99.9 .9 and get it wrong, that's kind of it for you, right? Right, right. Don't if you come say back 9, from 9, that one. 9, then, then if you, yeah, that, that is kind of it for you. That's the end of your, your forecasting career. Um, now, there's a kind of, mo there, in that sense, there's a motivation to have wider intervals. 
-hmm. because you like if you say it happened like what if biden had got 57 percent of the vote so he still would have won and then someone said well how come your probability was only 96 percent we'd say well it could have happened the other way like you can you know you can always explain these things yeah but, if, if, a, if a if a forecaster is always saying you know there, there's the the interval the, the confidence interval is between zero and 538 then that's nobody's interested in that right you you can't do that but our confidence interval was you know our 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 predictive our 95 percent predictive interval was was pretty wide like it, it went it, it include it went from like 250 that, to 450 for the yeah right something like that and it was like 300 so it was, it was in the interval so but that's like i'm kind of glad we made it that wide. there really is a certain amount of uncertainty yeah right but, but regarding this like backward reasoning it's just what we do like i don't i think that it's very rare that we'll have a statistical model where you can just run it without checking whether it makes sense and more i've seen probably for every time that I've seen someone take a model and fix it up so it makes sense and kind of cheat in that way, I've probably seen it three times the other way. Someone fits a model to data, the result makes no sense and they don't go back and change their model. They're just like, hey, this is what we found. There's a huge <laughs> literature of people finding ridiculous, estimating ridiculous causal effects and not thinking about what they didn't include in their model. And like, I think like, oh yeah, well we didn't include smoking in our model and we're looking at like, you know, deaths from air pollution. Like, what was that all about? Like you should have put smoking in your model. I don't care that you like, you didn't like, you, like so that this is happening all the time. So I'm, I'm usually more worried about getting a ridiculous answer than I am about like overfitting in that sense. All right, so there's a somewhat related question to one of the points you just made from Mita Gonen. So you ruminated a lot in, in your blog about post hoc adjustments of extreme model predictions, a subjective shrinkage applied to model output, if you will. Can you say more on this? Oh, um, yeah, I'm, I guess it, it's it's very related. And uh, I'm not sure if there's that much more I can say. I, I guess maybe I'll say this, that I did a lot of ruminating, like perhaps more than was necessary. And I guess the right, Ultimately, the right way forward has to be to get put more information into your model. So the question is, like, is there information there? Could we say, like, data on active campaigning and door knocking and rallies or voter registration? Is that relevant? Is there is there some information about the non-response, like, other than the polls themselves? Not all the polls had favored Biden. Like, some of the polls were closer to what actually happened look at them, did they do something right? Or did, did they just get lucky? Like it could just be like, when you have a whole population of polls, you're, you're gonna have a few that, that are, are that way. Like it, it would make sense to, to look into that and, and understand, but probably that's better than like my endless ruminating. Cool. The next question is from Amelia McNamara. Hello, Amelia. I'm teaching regression this semester and have been trying to relate the issue of prediction and polling to our course material. Of course, we've talked about correlated errors, but I'm also wondering about the connection to testing training data. Of course, we only have past data to use for training, but after the 2016 election, were people able to make models after the fact that fit or overfit the 2016 data? We built our model based on some combination of first principles and what kind of model we could build and our understanding what happened in the past. 
Then we backfit our model to 2016, 2008, 2012, and 2016. Those are the three elections where I think we had a lot of poll data that, that we could use. And we did, the model, our model had a bunch of parameters that we set externally. Like, for example, we, you, Rafa, you talked about this, the extra variance, like the extra uncertainty representing systematic, the, the standard deviation of the systematic polling error, like how large could that be? So that's a number that we put in. And then there's a covariance matrix for the states that we put in. You can't really estimate these from the data. You don't have yeah. enough. I mean, you, you're, you are estimating them from the data, from past data, but it's hard to estimate it formally. So we put these in and we did play with them to get what seemed like reasonable results. Yeah, I saw that, that the economists certainly did some shrinkage just based on the plots you showed for the yeah. correlations. And we did a lot. So we, we, we used this backfitting. I wouldn't, we didn't do so much a formal like cross-validation approach, but we back, we, we looked at what our, I remember early versions of our model where we'd run it on 2008, 2012, and 2016, and it wouldn't look right. Like it would jump around too much or it wouldn't adjust enough. There's also, you have to allow public opinion to vary, the states to vary over time. And how much should that be? So how much, if I want to say, like during the 2016 campaign, did Trump become, did Trump gain in certain states relative to others? How much do you want to allow that to be? So when you play with these parameters, you'll get different results. So we would look at the graphs representing underlying opinion in these previous elections and say, oh, this looks plausible, this looks reasonable, this doesn't. When it didn't, we'd say, we better make this variance bigger or change this correlation. And then that can have other effects. One thing we didn't do enough of that, but well, my that Merlin is planning to do, I think for part of his PhD thesis, is to try to see how much you can interrogate the model to understand what it's doing. But for example, we refit the model just taking out all the state polls. And we got mm -hmm. almost the identical results as we got just using national polls, because the election similar to the previous year's elections. It's not that different. Yeah, you use so, the previous year's results. Right, as, as but then input, like, yeah. then we fit it with just state polls and it didn't, wasn't much different. So like, then we, we tried something where we took out all the polls, the state polls in Pennsylvania uh, and it didn't do much. We took all the state polls in Pennsylvania and shifted them up by four points in Biden's direction. When we did that, the estimate for Biden went up by three points. So we'd say, okay, well, it's using that partially mm, a little. Sense, you're so, doing sensitivity analysis. <laughs> yeah, although it's more, not so much sensitivity analysis, like, hey, like, do I believe this assumption? Should I change it? It's more like I'm doing it to actually understand the model. It's more like if you're a doctor working with a patient and you're or a physical therapist, and you're like stretching out different muscles to understand what's going on underneath. It's, so it's not like we thought, hey, what if the polls in Pennsylvania are all off by four points? It's more, we, we did this little experiment in order to understand what our model is doing. It's like the importance or influence or something like that. Yeah, I just think our, our models are so large, like even little models like this are like that we need to do, you actually need to do quite a bit of research to figure out what you've actually been doing. Yes, all right, cool. Here's a good one from Surit Balakrishnan. And this is, this is a, I mean, the answer to this really is we have to wait a few years, but he's asking, is there a principal way to estimate how well calibrated the probability of win estimates are? So the Monte Carlo by 538 of 89 to 10, like how good was that? 
I guess oh. my answer to that would be that you know you wait several years and then you make a plot of wait you know, a few end. centuries. Well, yeah, you can. That's centuries. No, but you can look at it. if they're predicting many many elections. You could. Yeah, that way, right? Couple is there's only one national. So yeah, it's funny because at 538 they have a graph which shows they. they it's kind of funny because they say they're calibrated, but then if you look, they're not calibrated. Like their actual data show that when they say something is going to happen 80% of the time, it happens more like 85% of the time. Mm -hmm. They're a little underconfident, which like can make sense. But I don't even know how seriously I take that because they say they. they if you look, that's based on hundreds of thousands of cases, but they've only been doing this for a few elections so it's just that they have a forecast for every state every day and so you get these huge numbers but it's really just n equals one so i would say if i'm forecasting this election there's there's how well did i get the national how good did i get the national vote and then there's how good did i get the states relative to the national vote now the states relative to the national vote that's kind of like you do have 50 of those but the national vote, you only have one of. Um, the, I think the way you have to, so first, I don't think, it's, it's in much of life, like you can fail, but you, you can fail miserably, but you can't succeed brilliantly. There's no, there's nothing that's gonna tell you your forecast was right or calibrated, but you can learn your forecast was terrible. So you mm -hmm. can have that negative thing. I think that instead of looking at probability of win, your, your for, it's going to be better to try to evaluate the forecast based on the forecast intervals. So like, because what do I say? Like, yeah, I got West Virginia right. I feel great about that. No, I can say that West Virginia was off by, now West Virginia was off by a few percentage points. You know, that was, and it was like, that was, that was wrong. And like, well, maybe we can allow for that possibility, but like, you don't want that to happen. Um, so I think that, but focusing on wind probability throws away too much information. That's not a good way of evaluating forecast. Sure, sure, yeah. And, and then we would need a lot of, of years to see something empirical at least. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I have a follow up question for that, and uh, I was my, I was going to say this for the end, but since we're talking about ask it now. So what if that this is more of a philosophical question? What does that What does it mean for me to say two days before the election or six months before the election that the probability of Biden winning is 90%. How do you interpret that statement as, you know, from a philosophical point of view? I guess I, I interpret that as, as saying that like to the extent that, I mean, it's not that the polls are correct, right? It's that, cause it's that to the extent that polling errors and variation in public opinion are comparable to what they've been in previous elections, and then this is what you'd, you'd see. And I, again, it, it's, I, I think it can sometimes be more pleasant to think about predictive intervals rather than probability. So instead of it's like saying like how under these elections, Biden would win this many, I would say more like, well, this, if things happen the way they were happen, happening before, then you'd expect that there'd be about a 95% that chance this interval would contain what actually happens. The other thing I used to, I was telling people during, before the election was that Biden could lose. And if he loses, there'd be a reason for it, right? So there'd be a reason, meaning all these people weren't responding to the polls and the poll, the pollsters weren't adjusting for it, or there's a last minute change, or there are big, there are big public opinion 
um, there, are, there are big big shifts in public opinion or big turnout differences. So you could say some of that was happening. There were big turnout differences, perhaps, and and there were, um, and there, I think there were issues with who was responding to the survey. So there's kind of a, a reason for it. It's not like someone's just spinning a giant spinner, and if it lands in a certain region, then this is the election outcome. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a little bit complicated to think about the sources of variability and what it, you know, what it actually means when you make that statement. So Amelia has a follow-up question. Let's say you just had the 2008 and 2012 data. Could you do good predictions for 2016? Basically, even with in hindsight, can we get models that actually hit the point estimate? <laughs> no. No, yeah, right. No, not, not without using additional information. If you're willing to say that in 2016, I mean, if you're willing to say that in 2016, there are some non-response issues, whatever, um, specific to that election, then, then you could, but you couldn't otherwise, because the way our model is set up, our model is, and if you were to say the 2016, if you were to say that 2016 was like 2012, then you would have had a greater error in Hillary Clinton's favor because the 2012 polls went the other way. So our, our assumption in the model was that every new election, the potential polling errors started zero. With, sure, but you, but you, did, you did acknowledge how big it could be. I think again- the, the, Yeah, we acknowledge how big it could be, but that won't get, I mean, so like, yeah, given our knowledge that gives us wide enough uncertainty. So if you run our model for 2016, it says that Clinton was the favorite, but she could lose. Right, so, and based um, on the polls, that is the right answer, I think, right? It's yeah, sort of. I mean, maybe not. You know, maybe there's additional information that was accessible that we weren't using. That we we didn't. Um, I I think there there were pollsters that actually did get it right in 2016, adjusting for bet, doing better non-response adjustments. So, given the information that would get fed into our model, our model, which was not raw data from polls, right? Given that public public state polls and national polls that were, were put into the model and given the assumption that the bias could go in either direction, our model kind of did something reasonable. However, were there people, there were people who were able to do better um, by adjusting for more. I don't know that they did better in 2020 because in 2020, there may have been additional issues. Right. But I just, I don't want to be in the position of saying, okay, our data did a reasonable processing. Our model does a reasonable processing of the 2016 poll summaries, giving a re an answer, which from a statistical standpoint is reasonable and at the time seemed plausible. But that's not the same as saying what we did was right because there could be more information that we weren't including in our model. All right, well, I apologize to all the people that have um, asked questions and I didn't get to that there was a lot of them. So uh, maybe we'll do another one in 2024. So Andrew, what any parting words to any data scientists out there that wanna participate in this activity? Uh, I, I, my parting word is that collaboration is, is very important. Um, don't try to do stuff on your own. I, I learned so much from my collaboration. And I think also when you're collaborating, it helps because you're not so personally identified with, with, with your model or your forecast. You can be more free to admit your mistakes and learn from your mistakes. But if you're 
personally tied to it and identified with it, then it can be harder to admit error. Great. Well, thanks again for doing this. This is a lot of fun. And um, we'll see you again in 2024. Okay. <laughs> see you all later. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Hope you enjoyed it.